Well, from the wisdom of Disney's A Bug's Life, and I quote, the first rule of leadership, everything is your fault. And while there's a little bit of humor in this, there's actually no shortage of truth either. Uh, another man said it this way. He said, the problem with being a leader is that you're never sure if you're being followed or chased. <laughs> and perhaps this even better captures the polarizing effect that leaders can have. Just look around. Uh, in politics, those who love the president and those who utterly hate the president. In sports, you see it. You have Tom Brady crazies and Tom Brady critics. In the church, you see it. Just ask someone what they think about John MacArthur, and you will undoubtedly get one of two answers on opposite ends of the spectrum. Leadership is polarizing. But I want us all to be really involved in thinking about this personally now, and I want to think with you, how do you think about leadership? How do you think about leadership? It seems that many of us tend to err on one side or the other. Either we idolize leaders and we praise them too much, or we undervalue them and perhaps even view them as an outlet for our anger and frustrations. And this can be true in all kinds of settings, whether toward the government, toward your employers, your boss, or even toward spiritual leaders. And friends, I want to tell you that if we're left to the influence of our culture, to our education, even for many of us, to our upbringings, we are in trouble when it comes to thinking through the topic of leadership. I'm convinced we are not prepared and equipped to be able to think through the topic of leadership on our own. But thankfully, God does care how we think through leadership. He does care how we think about leaders, especially in the church. And so to see this, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the final study in our summer study through the mindset of the minister. And as I noted, these are going to be God's thoughts about leaders. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is our passage for this evening. I've titled this message, God's View of Spiritual Leaders. Now, as we know, the Apostle Paul was a man who was set apart by God to uniquely minister to the Gentiles. And we know that Paul had planted this church here in Corinth. Uh, the city of Corinth was exceedingly wicked, and yet when Paul left, that wickedness basically pervaded into the church. Uh, they had issues running rampant. And maybe we can relate to some of these as we examine the 21st century church today. Issues like compromise in the area of sexual immorality, apathetic towards issues like drunkenness, confusion over the use of spiritual gifts, perversion of God's design for marriage, uncertainty regarding their eschatology, and to add to this, they were worshiping their Christian leaders who were mere men. 
Any of that sound familiar as we examine the scene today? Well, all of this was going on in the Corinthian church, and so Paul must set it straight. He has to correct a lot of these errors. He has to fix the problems in this church. And so in our text today, he's specifically addressing the issue of how they viewed their leaders, how to view and relate to their leaders. Now, in this letter as a whole, he, he knows that they already speak highly of him and the other leaders, in fact. And so what he's going to do is he's going to draw from their own example of ministry in order to straighten out the Corinthians' view of leadership. And collegians, this is why this is critically important for us. This issue is critically important for us for the following reasons. Number one, this passage is going to show you how to view and how to relate to the spiritual leaders that God has placed in your lives. Let me say that again. It's going to show you how to view and it's going to show you how to relate to the spiritual leaders that God has placed in your life. But number two, it's going to shape your own leadership and give you a proper perspective for your own ministry. And I think there's a great need for both of these. One thing you don't realize until you're a leader is how much leaders actually do incur criticism. Whether we're talking about leaders on a sports team or leaders in a classroom, or leaders at work, or leaders in the church, leadership by nature invites feedback. It invites criticism. And therefore, leaders are subject to more praise, and at the same time, they're subject to more critique. And as you can imagine, then, church leaders are not exempt from this. Church leaders, just so you're aware of this, get criticized from all sorts of things that uh, range from their preaching and music all the way to the wall color and whether a church has pews or chairs. Uh, from things like their vision and direction as a leader all the way down to how the pastor dresses and his personality. Even his family life and recreation are not off the table when it comes to criticisms that pastors have heard from people. Unique to other jobs or even other leaders, I believe pastors and spiritual leaders are under a microscope that few can understand. Now to be sure, I, I want to just defend for a moment here, God has designed it this way. God has intentionally made the bar high for leaders. He has put them under a microscope on purpose. The people will not surpass their leader. And so it's imperative that leaders are exemplary. But amazingly, God now has in turn set apart these gifted men and he's given them as a gift to the church. So they're not to be just set apart and holy, but he gives them then as a gift to the church. And many of you are already thinking about Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, that God gave these certain positions of leadership to the church for what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So God gives these leaders to the church and yet they still endure a lot of criticism a lot of times. Now, Paul emphasizes this point to the Corinthians. Right before this passage, look back at chapter 3, verse 21. He says, Let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, rather than debating about who was best, arguing about who was better between Paul and Peter and Apollos, and dividing into factions, which were formed by a lot of criticism, Instead, he's saying we all belong to all of you. Leaders are a gift to the church, and we all have access 
to them all. And so, that's a, a little bit of the background going into this. And yet, sadly, the Corinthians were not thinking correctly about their leaders. They weren't viewing it in a biblical way, in a way that God would be pleased with. And so it's with this in mind that we get to chapter 4, and what we're going to do is see how God views leaders, how God views leadership, and what qualities he sees as important. I tell you, I'm really excited about this, even to go back through this again. Not maybe as excited as Deontay was about Catapalooza. Thanks for the enthusiasm. <laughs> but let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So friends, the first quality that God views leaders as is he says, leaders are servants. Leaders are servants. The late Howard Hendricks, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, profoundly impactful ministry, chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, impacted thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives. Howard Hendricks tells a story of the richest man in the city of Dallas. He was a millionaire, and he happened to be a Christian. This man owned skyscrapers, and he had a secretary who would sit uh, outside of his office and screen any visitors. She would answer his phone and answer emails and whatnot, and rightfully so. He needed to guard his personal time. He was a very busy man. And yet, this man also had a heart for youth. And on one occasion, he met with a young man personally, and the way that he met him is he'd been following him in the local newspapers through this guy's sports career. He would do this often. He would look up young men in the area who were doing well in sports, and he wanted to get into their lives. And so after meeting with this guy, this teenager, and encouraging him and telling him all that he thought he could be in life, really just investing him, building him up, he hands him a piece of paper with his personal cell phone on it. And he says, you call me anytime you want, and I'll be there for you. Now, Howard Hendricks pauses as he tells his story, and he says, I didn't even get this man's cell phone, and I was a colleague, a partner of his, a friend of his. He didn't give his personal cell phone to other executives, and yet he gave it to this teenage boy. And he was good, to, he was good on his promise. He would have young men in his office all the time investing in the youth, investing in the next generation of leadership, and really being a servant, making himself a servant to the next generation. Well, at his funeral, thousands and thousands of people showed up, and within that thousands, there were hundreds of young men, just like this one, who had been impacted by this guy's personal touch. And friends, what an example then of the type of leadership that God wants. He wants leaders to be servants, not up and looking down on everyone, but servants. Now, in describing spiritual leadership, so far, Paul has given several pictures. You may remember them with me. First, he uses the picture of a farmer. And the idea with the farmer is that while we plant and water, we can't cause the growth. Then he uses the picture of a builder. And a builder must be careful how he builds. In other words, you have to be careful how you invest in other people because there's going to be a day of judgment where your ministry will be evaluated. And now he uses this picture of a servant. Now, this word servant in English is familiar to us, but perhaps you would be surprised to hear that this is not the Greek word doulos, which we often hear uh, for the word servant. That's translated bondservant often, or slave. Nor is it the word diakonos, which is where we get our English word deacon, which just means generally a servant. Well, this is a unique word. The word in verse 1 here is the word huperites. And huperites in its basic form refers to an assistant or a helper. 
It was the idea of an under rower who would help the captain of the ship to row the boat forward. It was the captain's assistant. Interestingly, in Greek mythology, it was used to describe Hermes, who was Zeus's assistant or messenger. Now, unlike Doulos, a huperites was not bound, but he was free. He could claim his reward and leave at any time. And likewise, where the idea of the term diakonos focuses on the service that is rendered and the dignity affiliated with the certain act of service, this word focuses on the function or the role as an assistant. Okay, well, what's Paul saying? What does this matter? Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Corinthians, when you look at Paul, when you look at Apollos, you look at your spiritual leaders, you need to look at them as those having been commissioned as assistants of God. They are God's assistants. They have willingly signed up for this role. They can willingly leave this role. But they have been positioned in a unique role to serve you. They're God's assistants, God's messengers. So he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants, not as celebrities, not as punching bags, but as servants. They're servants, but get this, they're actually not your servants. Whose servants are they? Well, the text says, servants of Christ. Spiritual leaders then belong to Christ and they are his servants. And ironically then, no one exemplified this quite like Christ himself, did they? You think about Jesus' life and the servanthood that he demonstrated throughout his life, and it's utterly amazing. He lived a life of constant, and I mean constant service to others. Healing, feeding, casting out demons, doing miracle after miracle, sharing spiritual truth with all sorts of maturities. He invested himself into 12 men for three years without a break. 12 men. And in fact, in John 13, not only was he investing himself, but he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Humility. Service. He washes their feet and in hours they would depart from him. They wouldn't even stick with him when times got hard. And ultimately, where was Christ's service most clearly seen? Well, bearing our sin at the cross. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Behold then our Lord, our Savior, and the ultimate servant, Jesus Last I checked, none of us are to this point yet in our servant leadership. And yet that is our example. So, first point, God says that leaders are servants. But secondly, God says that leaders are stewards. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what's a steward, you ask? I'm glad you asked. A steward is... One who was in charge of the entire administration of the house or of the estate. He controlled the staff. He issued the supplies and the rations. And he essentially ran the whole household. In other words, he was one who was entrusted to care for the entire establishment. Essentially, he was the executive manager who stood in place of the owner himself. And as such, this person had to be highly trustable. 
It's basically the idea behind the parable of the talents, if you're familiar with that, out of Matthew 25. And here the Lord depicts a scene of a master leaving and entrusting his entire estate to three men. The faithful stewards then, two of them, went and took what they had been entrusted with and they made a profit for their master. But the one wicked, lazy slave took what he had been entrusted with and he just sat on it and he made no return. And the Lord told him to depart and cast him out. And so I think we see the picture then. This is stewardship demonstrated in a parable. A spiritual leader then is a steward. He's a caretaker of the mysteries of God. His duty is then to protect and also disseminate the truth of God's word in a way that is profitable for God. A steward manages so as to make a profit. He's to both guard and deposit the rich treasure that's been given to him. He's to manage the estate of spiritual matters that God has left to him in order to bring gain to the kingdom. And at the same time, he's not to squander what's been given to him. Now listen, he's not the CEO. He's not the president. He's not the owner, nor is he God. But he is God's assistant. He's God's helper. He's God's steward. So then, Paul is borrowing this idea of stewardship and applying it to spiritual leaders. To spiritual leaders. And what do the leaders steward? Well, the text says the mysteries of God. Well, what are the mysteries of God? Well, a mystery, anything that's a mystery in the New Testament is something that is now revealed clearly. In other words, it was hidden in the Old Testament or not clear in the Old Testament, but now has been made clear in the New Testament. It's now clearly seen and made plain for all to know. So essentially what he's saying when he says stewards of the mysteries of God is he's speaking of the entirety of the word of God. All that God has revealed, all of God's counsel. And just to get technical for a moment, what were a few things that are called mysteries of God, just to prove to you that I think this is a very broad scope here? Well, here's a few things. The incarnation of Jesus. In other words, Messiah, God, coming into the flesh. That's called a mystery. The indwelling of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's called a mystery. The union of Jews and Gentiles into one body called the church is called a mystery. The character and the representation of the state of the church given in Romans two, or, sorry, Revelation 2 and 3 when you have the seven churches being described. In other words, the fact that these churches represent what the future of the church would be, that's called a mystery. The rapture is called a mystery. That wasn't an Old Testament concept. Israel's rejection of Messiah is called a mystery. The church as the bride of Christ is a mystery. The final restoration of all things. And we could go on and on. There are many things that are called mysteries in the New Testament. And so the idea here, when he says stewards of the mysteries of God, is that the spiritual leader is to teach and preach the entire word of God faithfully. There's nothing that's off limits, in other words. All that has been revealed is what is to be disseminated and stewarded for a kingdom prophet. So, God wants his spiritual leaders to be viewed as stewards. Now, so far, Paul has just discussed the role of the leader. He's discussed him being a servant and now being a steward. But now he's going to turn to the character of the leader. And what stands on top of the mountain when it comes to character qualities for the Christian, is the quality of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Look at verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or one be found faithful. 
I know a man in this church who, whenever a conversation with an unbeliever, perhaps at work or just in society, comes up, uh, a lot of times the conversation will go something like this, and maybe you can relate to this. Oh, well, yeah, good for you. I'm glad you're a religious person, but I'm not really that religious personally. And I, I love this guy's response. He says, oh, well, yeah, actually, I don't really view myself as religious, but I view myself as faithful. I'm faithful. And you think about faithfulness compared to religious. Religious indicates ritual and works and man. Faithfulness indicates our commitment and allegiance to an almighty God. Oh, may it be true of us, friends, that we are called faithful. So if this is to be true of every Christian, does it not make sense that it should be exemplified and modeled in the Christian leader, in the pastor? Faithfulness should be true of every one of our lives. How much more so in the man of God? Well, how many converts does a guy need? How many converts does he need to be successful as a pastor? How many baptisms? How many leaders does he need to train? How big of a church or ministry? How big of a building? Bigger is better, right? More is more successful, right? Does Paul say anything about numbers here? No. In fact, he's utterly silent on the matter. Instead, it's almost as though he's jumping right in front of this desire to look to the externals. And instead of going to the metrics, he goes to the motives. He goes to the inner heart of the man. God is not concerned about metrics. He's not concerned about size and numbers and buildings. What he's concerned about is the faithfulness of the servant, the faithfulness of his man. He says, stewards must be faithful or trustworthy. And the idea of this word is one who inspires trust. I love that phrase right there. Inspires trust. He draws out trust from others. He draws out trust from God. This is the kind of character that's true of a servant of Christ and a steward of God's mystery. One who is known as trustworthy. Now listen, what is this not? You notice nothing in this text is mentioned about one who can entertain. Nothing is mentioned about one who can get a good laugh. Nothing is mentioned about one who can pack an auditorium or one who can take a church from this size to this size, take a church to the next level. That's not what God's after. That's not, get this, how God views leadership. It didn't matter how many followed Paul. It didn't matter how many followed Apollos or Peter. Nor does it matter how many people today like a certain pastor here or how big his church is. The measure of a leader is how faithful and trustworthy he is to get this, both guard and deposit the truth of Scripture. That's the measure. That is how he should be evaluated. Is he faithful? Now here's what's great about this. This sort of quality cannot be evaluated overnight, can it? You can't just look and be like, oh yeah, faithful, trustworthy, right there. It takes time. It takes time, doesn't it? Not only to evaluate it, but I would submit to you even to develop the character trait of faithfulness. It's not a natural character trait. It takes time then both to develop and to recognize these qualities. It's no wonder in 1 Timothy 3 that God says an elder in the church cannot be a recent convert. Why? Well, not to banish recent converts, but they need time to develop, to grow, to be tested, and to be observed. 
One practice of the elder board here at Grace Bible Church is oftentimes they will wait to ordain a man until they've watched his life for several years. Why? Because they want to see him in different settings. They want to see how he responds in different seasons of life before they put their stamp as a pastor on him. And I think there's wisdom in this. There's wisdom in getting to know a spiritual leader before wholesale submitting to their leadership, whether from a church's standpoint in placing a new guy in a position of leadership, or get this, from a member's standpoint when visiting a new church perhaps and trying to decipher who will you submit yourself to, who will you follow. It takes a little bit of time to recognize faithfulness, doesn't it? So, is he faithful? That's, that's the question here. Now, I want us to step back for a moment and think kind of outside of this for a moment. What is Paul doing here? And you think about how masterful this is. Not only is he providing his own example of leadership, not only is he helping them to see what sort of things to respect and to value in leaders, but get this, he is shaping their future leaders as he's writing this. He is shaping the leaders in the church in Corinth right here and now. In other words, and, and here's how I want to show this. Look at verse 1. Let a man regard us, first person plural. Look at verse 2. In this case, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It's a little bit of a subtle move here, but I believe he's intentionally going from his example to now broadening it, broadening it to any steward. Any steward of God must be found faithful. He's broadening the net here. Now, here's what's exciting about this. In this passage, then, we come to know and understand what should be true of our spiritual leaders, but we also get to learn what to strive for as a spiritual leader. In other words, if you're going to be a spiritual leader, then these qualities are for you, guy or gal, whether you're gifted in leadership or not. If you're going to have influence as a leader in your life, you should strive for these exact qualities. And what have we seen so far? Well, to be a servant and to be a steward. Just profoundly impactful, is it not? So then, transitioning now from the role and the character, uh, there's need to address the accountability of the leader. Or to say it another way, how should a leader be evaluated? There were all sorts of opinions flying around, factions being formed. Oh, Apollos this, Paul that, we like Peter better. How should a, a leader, though, be evaluated? Verse 3, to me it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. And let's stop there. In looking at now how God is going to evaluate a spiritual leader, the first thing he's going to do is define this by way of negation. In other words, he's going to say, here's who I'm not accountable to. I'm going to get to who I am accountable to, but in God's view, I ultimately am not accountable to you. Well, that's kind of shocking. Think about the world around us. What, what sort of positions and what sort of leaders are often evaluated by the general public? Well, how about athletics? Are they evaluated by the public? Oh, my goodness. Who doesn't evaluate? If you're a football fan, who's not an armchair quarterback? Oh, yeah, this guy can throw the ball well, but he's nothing like the guy back in 75. He could throw the ball a country mile. Right? Do we not all do that to some degree when you watch sports? How about with music? or entertainment, or actors. We are prone to compare our favorite actors, our favorite singers. How about with your boss? Maybe you've had more than one job. 
Do we compare? Do we evaluate? Our bosses, uh, is their success contingent upon your evaluation? To some degree, yes, they are. How about parents? I can, just, I can just see it in my mind, a little kid. But mom, so-and-so's mom and dad lets them do this every weekend. Right? Don't we compare parents? Parents are the leaders of kids. So think about leadership in this world around us and how often it's dependent upon feedback from others. And now, look at this verse again. Paul says, To me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. He wasn't putting stock in human feedback. And are you ready for the shocker? Their feedback wasn't all bad. In fact, just the opposite, friends. What did Paul say in chapter 1 about baptizing them? When he's writing to them in chapter 1 and divisions are occurring, what does he say? He says, I thank God that I baptized how many of you? None of you, except for two of you. But pretty much none of you. Why? So that you would learn to not boast in men, but boast in God. Paul was thankful he didn't baptize them because he didn't want them boasting in him. So now you think about this, and he's not dependent on their feedback, and yet it was praise for the most part? Boy, that is humbling. That is humbling. He's essentially saying in verse 3, the feedback from those around me is relatively insignificant. It's relatively trivial, or it's a small thing. Listen, gang, do you know how hard this is to do? All right, I had to think of some scenarios, so I'm going to appeal to our architect section for a moment. Jimmy, you too. Your prof gives you an A in a class, and you get an A in every class, actually, coming out of your senior year, and you land a sweet job right out of college with an architectural firm. Boom. How are you evaluating yourself? Well, stop for a moment and realize every aspect that we just discussed is human feedback. Okay, you're an athlete. You win a starting spot on the team. Your team wins the conference and you are given team MVP. How do you evaluate your success? Are you successful? What are you basing that off of? You're a teacher. Your students are all learning well. The parents praise you and the kids all write you heartfelt thank yous at the end of every year. Just heartwarming. How are you evaluating yourself as a teacher at this point? You see how much human feedback has to do with our evaluations. How about for the pastor? The ministry is growing. People talk a lot about your preaching and teaching, and folks often bring you treats showing you appreciation. Come on now. <laughs> Just kidding. But you see, actually I'm really not kidding, bring treats. You see how easy it is to, to evaluate our success based on the feedback of others. Look at what Paul's saying. He's saying, it's a very small thing to me. Now, as a caveat, what I'm not saying, and what I believe God is not saying, is that spiritual leaders should never receive feedback. I think both praises and criticism should be received, should be given, and they should be received in humility. Uh, it's good to weigh and to consider, wow, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe that guy's right. We should be thinking about this differently. Or, wow, that was a really thoughtful compliment about the sermon. I'm glad that God used my teaching to help them understand the Word of God better. But, they are not ultimately accountable to people. Leaders are not ultimately accountable to people. They're ultimately accountable to God. And so, the question is then, how much significance is in the feedback? In other words, if feedback makes you devastated... 
Or if it makes you sore like eagles and get little fuzzy feelings inside your stomach, maybe you're putting too much emphasis on the feedback you're getting from other people. Our focus should be on God. And here's why I think this is. This is why this is important. Is that it's easy to put on a good show and do whatever makes people happy, isn't it? It's easy to just do things in order to appease people. And yet, what does that remind us of? Man, at least my mind goes to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It says that times will come when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. In other words, if you swing too far and you are dependent on human feedback as a spiritual leader, watch out because that is going to take you on a path you don't want to go down. So then leaders shouldn't live and die on the feedback from people. And guys, I think maybe coming at it from another angle, this is what a lot of pastors are doing today. Yes, a lot of them are doing the tickling ear thing, but a lot of them are really just trying to be people pleasers. And what happens is they take on too much stuff. They want to say yes to everyone because rather than deriving their priorities from the word of God for their ministry, they're deriving their priorities from the demands of people around them. And so what do you get? You get pastors who are dying in their 50s and 60s from intestinal stress issues. You get pastors who are doing everything just okay, but not really doing anything well. And I think the principle trickles down to us as well, even as leaders among your peers. How are you evaluating feedback from people? Yes, with humility, but not dependent on it. That's not what determines success. Now, there's even a more shocking truth, though, here. Not only does Paul not rely upon human feedback, look at the end of verse 3. He says, in fact, I do not even examine myself. And here's the thing. Here's why he's saying this. What's our natural tendency? Our natural tendency is to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. You know, I really didn't do that bad in the game. Yes, I knew I threw four interceptions, but ah, it wasn't as bad as I think it was, right? We naturally want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And maybe you're pushing back. You're saying, well, I don't do that. Okay, so you're one of those people that's your own worst critics? Well, where's their pride in that? Well, let me give you two possibilities here. Number one, you're hard on yourself so that others won't be, and instead they will affirm you. If you're always down on yourself, then other people will come alongside and build you up, which is what you really want. Or number two, you're hard on yourself because you want to be perfect so that others will love you. You see, in either way, either side of this, it's a lose-lose. Whether you give yourself the, the benefit of the doubt and you're easy on yourself, or whether you're hard on yourself, both are derived from pride, which Paul recognizes. Therefore, he says, I don't even examine myself. In other words, I don't trust my own evaluation. And again, it's not a hard and fast rule. Yes, it's good to receive feedback from people. And yes, it's good to do introspection. We want to be evaluating how can we get better? How can we do better as a ministry? How can my life be more glorifying? In fact, as a staff, Cross Life staff, we pulled away in June. We evaluated our personal lives. We evaluated the ministry as a whole for a whole weekend. But when it comes to the overall assessment and verdict to the success of one's own ministry, Self is not a reliable judge. Why? Because self will always promote self. And he continues to demonstrate this same point. Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but... And stop right there. I actually wanted to stop before the but. He says, I am not by this acquitted. Now, 
The first thing he says here is that he's not conscious of anything against himself. And what does this imply? Coming back to the point, it implies that if he was conscious of anything against himself, he would have dealt with it, right? And so we're not advocating bullheaded leadership here. If you know of something that you're doing wrong, don't just say, hey, I don't examine myself. I'm going to ignore that problem. No, 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 no. Paul says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. And so introspection is good, but when it comes to the overall evaluation of his ministry, he knew, number one, he'd made mistakes in the past. Number two, there's a possibility of him making mistakes in the future. And number three, there's even a possibility that he was making mistakes right now, but he just couldn't see them clearly. And so you see, he says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, he can't trust his own evaluation as the ultimate judge of his ministry. And so he takes the advice from the same book in chapter 10, take heed lest you fall. He really takes a humble perspective here. This is not an arrogant thing. This is an extremely humble phrase that Paul is saying. We can get so wrapped up in our own evaluation of our lives and our ministries that we can easily slip into pride and arrogance, which, friends, it's going to make you useless to the master. Absolutely useless if you're prideful and arrogant. And likewise, the one who's overcritical and becomes discouraged is just as useless. And so, when it comes to the overall assessment, neither outside or inside judgments really hold much weight. And the reason for this, look at verse 4, the end of verse 4, is because, he says, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Compared to the examination of the Lord, others' evaluation and even our own evaluation does not hold any weight. He says, the one who examines me is the Lord. And now look at verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The reason outsiders' perspectives and even his own perspective did not hold much weight is because it can easily be wrong. But whose perspective is never wrong? God's perspective is never wrong. Why? Because he not only sees what you do, but he sees why you do what you do. Does that terrify you? That terrifies me. God sees not only what we do and what we think, he sees why we do what we do. Chapter 3 undoubtedly says that we will be judged for our work in verse 13 and 14 and a little bit 15. There will be reward given for those who are faithful of what we do. But now here chapter 4 verse 5 says that judgment, that Bema seat judgment, it's going to go a layer deeper even. God's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts and give each man a reward based on that. Oh boy. Is it possible for someone to do good things externally and have the wrong heart internally? Absolutely. Is it possible for someone to deceive an entire church and even to deceive himself that he's doing a great job? Absolutely. But God sees right past any human judgments, any human deception. And the best story I could think of to demonstrate this is, unfortunately, from my own past. Uh, eighth grade, headed to an eighth grade basketball game. My biological father is up visiting at this time, and the game's in Livingston. And we're driving through a residential area in Livingston, and it's blizzarding. I'm already in my shorts and basketball shoes. 
and uh, there's a foot of snow on the ground, and I can see the school. We're like on the street to the school. We're almost there. 45 minutes before the game, I need to be there half an hour early, and all of a sudden my dad slams on the brakes. Dan, do you remember this? Okay, good. My dad slams on the brakes. He says, Matt, get out of the car and go shovel this lady's walk. And I look over, and there's a 90-year-old lady, at least, shoveling her walk out there, doing this. And I said, Dad, I don't know her. He said, Matt, get out of the car. I said, Dad, I'm in my basketball clothes. I got a game in 45. He said, Matt, get out of the car. So I get out, and whoosh, he's gone. And so I turn over to this lady, and I walk over here, and I say, hi, ma'am. Um, can I shovel your walk? And she goes, no, I've got it. I kind of look over, okay, well, I don't have a ride. Uh, can I shovel your walk? And so she lets me shovel her walk, and it took me about 30 seconds because it was actually just the walk in front of her house. And my dad circled the block till I was done and finally picks me back up. Well, the worst part is yet to come. Monday morning comes around, and the principal at our middle school begins announcements. And you know the intercoms all throughout the school. And he's doing his announcements, and, and he says, and Ladies and gentlemen, I want to inform you of a very exciting story that I read about in the newspaper this morning. One of our own students from Belgrade Middle School uh, did an act of utter service this weekend. Matt Tebow, out of his kindness toward the elderly and just a true act of compassion, shoveled a lady's walk in Livingston, of all places, during a rivalry tournament. And he should be commended for this. So if you see Matt today, make sure that you tell him great job and what a great man he is. And I just sunk into my chair out of utter shame. Well, that somewhat demonstrates the point, doesn't it? You can certainly do the right thing and receive accolades for it, and yet your heart can be far from being aligned with that truth. How much more so then in spiritual matters? Friends, listen, there is so much spiritual pride that goes on, spiritual wrong motives that... It's just hard because we want to do the right thing. But even in discipleship, can there be pride in wanting to form a disciple that is just this awesome stalwart of the faith? Oh, you bet. Can there be pride in wanting to have so many converts and wanting to be this great evangelist and have this great ministry? Man, this, this hits deep for me. Many leaders today are in it for their own fame. They're in it for their own recognition. They're in it for their own comfortability. And yet God says that there will come a day when everyone's hearts will be weighed. Everyone's motives will be disclosed. So as we begin to land the ship, I want to draw it in now to an application level. What about for us? What about for the average layperson? How does this apply? And I think there's lessons here for all of us. The first lesson is, of course, even in your individual ministries, we ought to aim to please God, not man. Amen? God is the one who we strive to please. God's opinion is what we care about. And therefore, we align our ministries and our lives to match God's word. And I want to encourage you to respond to this truth. I'm going to give us a moment for that in a, in a second here. But there's another lesson here, too, that I don't want us to miss, and it's this. Don't try to judge motives. Let me say that again. Don't try to judge other people's motives when it comes to ministry. Why? Because that's God's job. Notice verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment. Well, what, well, what's he talking about? What kind of judgment? Read on. Because God will disclose the motives of men's hearts. The judgment he's talking about is just trying to disclose motives of people's hearts. 
Friends, this is a command to all of us. Do not go on judging. Yes, okay, again, caveat. Yes, we deal with outward sin. Outward sin must be dealt with. And as brothers and sisters, we go to our brother and sister and say, brother, this is not pleasing to the Lord. This looks bad on our church and on, more importantly, Christ. But when it comes to the inner motives, again, you can help people do introspection. We want to weigh through hearts. But you cannot discern someone's motives. That's God's job. That is God's job. And man, damage can be done when people go around and try to play God, calling people out for what they think their motives are. This is a little bit frustrating for me. A leader's job is to be a servant and a steward, not to be a motive police. That's God's job. So here we go. In our assessment of leaders, how about for us going the other way now? Number one, don't think that you know their motives. Don't try to judge leaders' motives. And number two, don't be discouraged then if someone falsely categorizes your motives when you know that your heart was right before the Lord. Don't be discouraged. God will judge motives in the end. The text says, in the end, he will bring to light all motives and each man will be awarded accordingly. So what should spiritual leaders be according to the Lord? Well, they should be servants of Christ. They should be stewards of the truth that God has now revealed. And they should be set on being pleasing to God, knowing that it is to Him that they're accountable. Let's bow together for a moment. Just as a closing application here, I want to guide your thinking here for a moment and encourage you to respond to what we've seen today. And I want to focus it in on this idea that we are to be pleasing to God. God knows our hearts. He knows our motives. So as you're sitting here reflecting for a moment, I'd encourage you to just weigh your heart and ask God to show you where are there false motives? Where are there aspects in our hearts where we are concerned about what others think or we're putting too much stock in the evaluation of our peers or our leaders where we want to achieve a following Due to pride? Lord in heaven, this is weighty. This is a lofty text and we thank you for informing us how to view leadership in the church. We pray for good leaders. Lord, we pray that in this church and many other churches, you would form godly leaders who we can trust and we can follow. Lord, even within our ministry, we pray for godly leaders. We pray that you would raise up godly men and godly women to be leaders, Lord, who exemplify these qualities. But Lord, in the meantime, help us to examine our hearts honestly, truly, Lord, Help us to not deceive ourselves in just thinking we're doing a good job because we, we know we can't trust ourselves, but we need to come to your word and see what your standard is for leadership. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us servants. Make us servants of Christ who are set on a humble role of aiding his work. Lord, make us stewards, even at an individual level in our discipleship and our evangelism, stewards of the mysteries of God. Lord, make us faithful, faithful men and women who do not waver, who are unshaken, 
who are the opposite of flaky, Lord. Give us faith that is sure. And Lord, remind us we are accountable to you. Our lives are going to go quick. And Lord, we will stand before you in judgment. So we pray that you would make these sort of men and women in this group. In Jesus' name, amen.